Johnson. And they were copied from the American Humanist magazine from the uh, May-June issue. And you can see the title of the article is, Who Do Men Say That I Am? And the first one is an appraisal. And then, who do men say that I am? And the statement says, biblical scholars and theologians are sketching a new portrait of the man called Jesus. Uh, this first article said that uh, Roman Catholic biblical scholarship finally catches up with the times. Now, in giving me this, uh, Mark had ran off copies, and I ran off another copy so that I could mark it up. But after reading it, he made the observation that he could understand why we had why I'd put so much emphasis on Christian evidences in the study. Uh, years back, when I started to teach in the field of evidences, one of the things that was somewhat frustrating to me is that there's so many people in the church that really didn't know what was going on in this realm and, and really were not reading the materials written by atheists, uh, infidels uh, in the humanist publications and were uh, totally unaware of these people other than the fact there was just people that claimed to not believe in God or not believe the Bible was in, inspired of God. And yet uh, the humanist and the whole unbelieving part of our society have had tremendous influence in our society. Uh, from now to the going back to towards the turn of the century uh, by the various polls, about 25% less of our population would be considered uh, believers in the inspiration of the Bible. Okay, about 25% less than at the turn of the century that would be considered. I'm not talking about just having some belief in Jesus and all, but, but literally believing uh, that the Bible was written by men that are inspired by God. Uh, Anybody that is my age or older and somewhat younger than me can easily tell the difference in our society now as opposed to going back, for example, into the 50s, where the programs that you have on TV could never have been on TV then. They just simply could not have been there. Movies that are in the PG category would not have sold back then. They just simply couldn't have existed. Uh, abortion was against the law back then. Uh, there was no drug problem. Uh, we had a culture that had been influenced more by the Judeo-Christian philosophy of life than anything else uh, in, our, in our society. Well, now we have reversed that. And all we have to do is look at the makeup of our courts, uh, some of the decisions that's been passed, look at our universities, uh, one of my daughter calls me the other day, and she, after two years at Lipscomb, she's in her first year at Tech, and, and she was a little bit surprised or shocked that the first class she went through there in psychology, that the professor used bad language and others would speak up and use bad, and that was just accepted. Uh, we've seen the effect in even the uh, Christian colleges. Uh, I know it was interesting to me in reading Mike Cope's uh, book. Mike is the preacher at the college church at Searcy, Arkansas. And to point out that uh, about 40% of the uh, young males by the time they finish college uh, are sexually active. This is at the, this is those that are professing Christians, about 26% of the women. That uh, about 50% uh, will use alcohol. 
and this is at a Christian college now, and among, among Christians. Uh, now, and he's not talking about just that one college. He's talking about uh, colleges as a whole uh, supported by Christians. Uh, when I was at Freed Hardeman in the late 1950s, uh, there was only a little over 400. It was a junior college then. You'd have probably been hard-pressed to find more than eight or ten people that used alcohol, and we all know who they were. Uh, you'd have been hard-pressed to find 10% uh, that used tobacco uh, in, the, in the school at that time. And I honestly didn't know any more than, than just a handful that, uh, that, that I would have thought maybe was sexually active. I didn't know for sure about anybody. But just based on observation, maybe a handful. Uh, and then I was at Lipscomb in the 60s. You know, not a whole lot of difference, somewhat. But there, there's been a tremendous difference. I can walk on the campuses and, and see the difference in the dress and, and so many areas. And of course, I can see it in the public school system. Well, it's no accident. That just didn't happen. Uh, the, the humanist organizations, uh, the liberal theologians, uh, have for a number of years been writing and teaching in such a way as to discredit the Bible and to put doubt in the minds of people. Uh, and it doesn't really start with our generation. It really goes way back into the, uh, the Age of Enlightenment and into the past century. Uh, the German theological seminaries the Tubigen School and, and its theories, uh, Charles Darwin, uh, Sigmund Freud, uh, Fran Nischke, uh, the heroes philosophically of Adolf Hitler and, and people like Joseph Stalin. But suffice it to say that you cannot just sit back and say that, well, hey, I don't care what somebody who is an atheist in a university believes or some humanist, because whatever is believed by the intellectuals in any generation, give it a period of a few generations, and the majority of the population will believe it. Uh, you can look at any society, look at what is believed among the intellectuals and the philosophy of life, the people that are the editors of the newspapers, that write the books, that are going to be the uh, top people so far as judges and lawyers and, and things of that nature, whatever it is that they believe philosophically. Uh, they will so impact society through their writing and their speaking and, and their judgments that within a few generations you will affect an entire society. So you, you can't just sit back and say, well, hey, it's not here at home. All right, this article really is the kind of material that I've read for years. It was material that really I came in contact with back in the 60s. And we'll give you an idea of, of some of the articles being written uh, in these publications that individuals that you and I are interested in studying the Bible with, and then we wonder why it is they're not interested in Bible study. You know, we invite them to church, they're not interested in coming. Uh, we invite them to a Bible study, they're not interested in Bible study. Uh, sometimes they even look on us a little bit condescending as if, you know, you know, if you're that simple and you believe that, and that solves your, you know, is a little sad for your conscience, fine. You know, but I, I don't need it. Um, so I'll read some, just a few highlighted statements, and then we'll look at it uh, so far as the, the actual evidence behind it and the meaning behind it. Uh, Who do men say that I am by Kerry Kemp Temple? All right, now this guy that writes the article is a person who was brought up as a devout Roman Catholic and taken to Catholic schools, taught all the traditional Christian views, believed in miracles, the whole bit. 
he is now a complete unbeliever. As a result of materials he has studied, not from the humanist, but from theologians, primarily Catholic theologians. And as a result of studying that material, he's become an unbeliever. He now writes an article that the humanists grab it up and publish it in their paper. Well, this guy, uh, Gerald LaRue, is of course fascinated uh, by this Catholic that finally sees the light and sees hope for other Christians, that they will eventually see the light also. And so he writes an appraisal of this particular article. And here are some of the comments that he makes. Uh, almost all of his references, speaking to the guy that writes the article, are to Catholic scholars. And what he presents is where critical Roman Catholic scholarship is today. All right, he's right there. What is said in this publication does indeed represent where critical Roman Catholic scholarship is at the present time. And I'm talking about the majority of it, the mainstream. For over a hundred years, biblical scholars have been applying the best tools of historical literary analysis to the Bible. As they examine the stories about Jesus in the context of the first century, they demonstrated that the bulk of the New Testament material is fiction. Birth stories, miracle stories, resurrection stories abounded at that time period. The early Christian writers simply adapted current hero stories to Jesus producing a legendary figure, a faith symbol, around whom an entire belief system was to emerge. Okay? Uh, you're a young college student. You've been brought up, taken to church, uh, studied the Bible. And so you go to college, and you find out that in the first uh, century that the various things you read about Jesus, those stories abounded about other myth characters that whether you're talking about a resurrection, uh, a virgin birth, uh, miracles, uh, a teacher who goes around uh, getting disciples, that you can find all of that in numerous other people in the first century. Uh, the Christians grabbed hold of that, applied all of those stories to Jesus. Well, what does that do to your faith? And by the way, uh, we've got no reason right at this present time to assume that it's false. But here you are, a young person, and, and I'd suggest to you that if you've been brought up in the traditional Bible school way, nothing you have studied has prepared you for the material that he's going to give and the reasoning that he's going to give behind it. Okay, he says, uh, one must consult the best evidence to confirm or disprove teachings. Analyzing the New Testament, Jesus' story is like peeling an onion, as one would non-historical Fictional layer after fictional layer is removed. In other words, he's saying, as you sit down and pick it apart and challenge every piece of it, you will peel off one fictional layer after another. Is this the true onion? Is this the true Jesus? Uh, there is not enough left to grasp a personality. He says, by the time you tear away all the fiction, uh, there's not even enough there to create a personality. As father, and I cannot pronounce the last name, as Catholic priest, told uh, Temple, the writer of the article, the fact is Jesus existed. In other words, he's, he's saying after all his study, the best I'm willing to say is Jesus existed. But th even this assumption has been challenged. So uh, when Temple does his research, uh, he goes to a, a Catholic priest for help because he can't explain what he uh, has found. And so the father just tells him, well, the best I'll tell you is he existed and even this assumption has been challenged. 
Okay, uh, now he goes ahead and tells some things that we supposedly know about Jesus. Jesus appears to have come under the spell of John the Baptist. Soon after John was killed as a political troublemaker, Jesus seems to have taken up John's cause, perhaps with some differences in emphasis. His activities lasted no more than two years, but more probably less than one, before he, like his teacher John, came under religious and political condemnation. He was put to death as a common criminal along with two other condemned men. Shortly after his death, his movement revived and grew. Now he'll make that particular statement because he uses as his source Tacitus, the Roman historian. But that's great. We'll look at that. We know little concerning his teachings. Many of the sayings attributed to Jesus are obviously compilations of developing movement uh, of a developing movement attributed to Jesus to give them authority. At present, a group of scholars is attempting to determine which sayings might be considered authentic. After research, analysis, and discussion, they vote. And you see what he's saying? That uh, we don't really know exactly what he said. At present, the scholars are peeling away all this fiction. We're going to try to get down to the actual words that we can be confident that he said. And the way we'll arrive at that conclusion is the scholars will vote. Jesus appears to have been an apocalyptics uh, teacher teaching a concept which was popular among some Jewish sects including the monastic group that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls. He believed that the end time was at hand, that the Jewish God would break into human history and establish a divine kingdom, apparently, if the writer of the book of Revelation is correct, with Christians in places of power and authority. Of course, Jesus was absolutely wrong, as were other New Testament writers of the New Testament and the Jews who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls as Christians have been throughout the centuries and as they are today in their attempts to reinterpret first century divine end of age nonsense and make it apply to the present time. Notice what he's saying. Jesus and the early Christians following him went around preaching a end of time and he's going to develop that further. They thought the world was going to end. It obviously did not. Christians still haven't woke up. For 2,000 years, they continue to preach that the world is going to end and Jesus is going to come back soon. They said it's a lot of nonsense. Uh, they need to admit their mistake. He said, really, they borrowed that concept, that the people that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls were also preaching uh, the end of the world, and, and Jesus bought into it, and it just simply didn't happen. For centuries, unquestioning pilgrims have visited the site, talking about the temple and the various things of the first century. Uh, during the past 100 years, another burial spot has been proposed, the so-called garden tomb, in the, which in the minds of some looks more like Jesus' tomb ought to look. Uh, and he goes ahead and describes a particular tomb. What he's doing now is talking about all these places that have been uh, proposed as burial sites down through the centuries for Jesus. And, of course, obviously he's saying nobody really knows. Uh, antidotes about post-mortem visions are hallucinations beginning with that of Paul and including reports allegedly coming from disciples from women who visited the tomb after the crucifixion appear to have provided one of the basis for the development of a faith system. Clearly Jesus was a charismatic leader and like many present day gurus he attracted disciples who continued to work after his death. The Jesus legends grew in that age of credulity. In other words they weren't very smart. And after the acceptance of Christianity by the monarchy the movement was on a roll and has continued ever since. 
Okay, notice what he's saying there, that uh, they killed Jesus, but then the movement just got bigger. You know, thought they stopped it. Well, again, he, he acknowledges they killed him, and the movement got bigger. But he said it was after a series of hallucinations, and so beginning with Paul. And then everybody began to hallucinate and think they had seen him, and they really believed in it, and that ended up, that, that the resurrection stories, uh, of course, fed on that. Uh, when I asked some educated skeptical priests and Roman Catholic educators, okay, this is the guy, the, the former Catholic, when I asked some educated skeptical priests and Roman Catholic educators how they could remain Catholics in light of the material, they replied in terms of ethnicity, a notion obviously borrowed from liberal Jews who remain Jews despite the abandonment of their traditional faith. Okay, what he's saying is that just as Jews today, do not, there are liberal Jews who do not believe in God. Uh, the majority of Jews do not believe in the inspiration of the Old Testament. And so you ask them, why then do they remain a Jew? And again, it has to do just simply with their national common origin together in their culture. What well, he says in the same way when he asked Catholic scholars, how can you remain uh, a Christian in light of your knowledge of all this information. And he says, they reply in the same way. In other words, they make it clear they have no real faith in Jesus as the Son of God. But it's a cultural thing. It's, it's part of their background. It's part of their education. Their, their livelihood is, is tied up in it. In fact, he will go ahead to point out that uh, they think the church can be a good tool for social reform in, in our society. Uh, okay, in sharing this important article... The humanist does us all a service. Notice now a statement for few humanists in their skepticism are willing to take the time and expend the effort to investigate the Jesus traditions. With his article, Kerry Temple also does us a service by helping us see where Roman Catholic biblical studies are at the present time and providing us with some important information about the so-called search for the historical Jesus. All right, notice what he's saying. He's saying that Kerry has done us a tremendous service as he's speaking to his humanist writers. But notice what he said. He says, few humanists are willing to take the time to search out the Jesus traditions and prove to themselves how false it is. All right, now he makes, a, he makes an admission there that is true. Just as few Christians have taken the time to really examine the evidences behind the things that they propose to believe in the same way now. The vast majority of atheists, the vast majority of infidels, the vast majority of humanists have never really studied why they believe what they believe either. Okay? They have been fed a line. He doesn't say that. But, but under all this, he does. Uh, that, that what he's really said is that most humanists have accepted the humanist belief on Jesus even though they haven't examined it themselves. They've, ex they've accepted it on the basis of the writings, just as most Christians have accepted what they believe based on the writings of the Christians uh, the, and the preaching of those who do believe. Okay, now, in the article, some statements, uh, he tells you how he begins to wind through 20 centuries of accumulated knowledge trying to distinguish between fact and fiction. And he said, I realized I was running counter to much of what had been ingrained in me. Now, one of the things that comes out very strong in the article, 
there is not one single solitary conservative scholar that is even quoted. If he read from a single conservative source, it's not noted here. All his reading was done from liberal scholarship. Most of it was done from liberal Catholic scholarship. Okay? So the first point is that the information itself, supposedly a research on the historical Jesus, he has, by process of elimination, limited himself to Catholic scholars and, number two, to liberal Catholic scholars. And so the research is done in, in that vein. All right, in many ways, the figure of Jesus is like a poem. Or as one prominent Catholic scholar wrote, Jesus is a parable. The story of his life has not come to us like a news report. It's more like poetry, conveys a different kind of truth. In other words, this was a guy actually defending the faith and trying to get him to see that you just can't look at Jesus in a historical way. Uh, let's see. Uh, the New Testament is the testimony of a believing people. And what they are saying is not history, but expressions of their belief in Jesus Christ. All right, saying the New Testament is not written as a historical document. But it's written by believers, and he goes on to say, these believers that write the New Testament are not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the ones you've thought. Uh, they write a couple of generations after the events have transpired. And what you really have is expressions of faith of that particular community. Uh, let's see. Uh, he then goes on to quote, uh, Albert Schweitzer lost his own search in 1906 in the, his book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus. The Jesus of Nazareth that came forward publicly as a Messiah who preached the ethnic of the kingdom of God, who founded the kingdom of heaven upon earth and died to give his work his final consecration. Notice his conclusion, what? Never had any existence. So he quotes Schweitzer, by the way, some of you may be familiar with that work, that uh, that, that was his conclusion, that the, there, there never existed a Jesus that is portrayed in the Gospels. Okay, now he goes ahead and talks about hero tales of the first century and, and shows how they adapted them to the, uh, uh, to the person of Jesus. For example, let's see if I can find it. Uh, uh, real, oh, here it is. Listen to this. One such mythical hero, hero was Merthus. He was a Persian deity introduced to Rome midway through the first century, shortly before the Synoptic Gospels are written. He too was said to have been sent by Father God to vanquish darkness and evil in the world. Born of a virgin, a birth witnessed only by shepherds, Merthus was described variously as the way, the truth, and the light, the word, the son of God, the good shepherd, often depicted carrying a lamb on his shoulders. All right, now, that is true. Okay? Uh, Merthus, a Persian deity, introduced uh, midway in the uh, first century and all these characteristics attributed to Christ were attributed to him. Notice what he's saying. This was there and the synoptic gospels came afterwards. They took and borrowed these concepts and then applied it to Jesus. Okay? Okay, then he goes further and he says... Uh, in 48 B.C., uh, uh, Julius Caesar was proclaimed God, Savior of human life, divine man, Augustus, during the reign of Jesus, 
uh, said, I have been sent by God. Uh, Romanless, according to Livy, was conceived by God and born of a virgin. And he's correct. He's quoting Livy accurately on that. Uh, it was not until the Council of Nicaea in 325, it, and by the way, in the humanist writings, they will have 325 CE or common error. They refuse to recognize Jesus uh, from a historical standpoint. Uh, see, one thing that's always bothered them is all of history by the calendar we use revolves around the birth of Christ. So B.C. and A.D. Uh, referred to before Christ in the year of our Lord. So the humanists will always use C.E. More and more in the writings, in textbooks, in the public schools, you're going to find that A.D. and B.C. go out completely, and C.E. or common error will be used. But he says it was not until the Council of Nicaea in 325 C.E., that church leaders determined that Jesus was of one substance with the Father. All right, notice what he's saying there? Is this whole idea of Jesus being God and incarnate was something that evolved over a period of centuries, and then they only settled on it at certain times. Uh, let's see. The, another biblical scholar says, after his death and their experience of the resurrection, his followers went back to the scriptures to learn more about the Messiah and see who he really was. One of the things they found about the Messiah was that he was called Son of God. And now it takes off from there because they wanted to say he was more than Son of God than anything else. And so they're saying that after Jesus, the Christian scholars go back to the Old Testament and begin to learn more about the Messiah. And then what they learn, they write it into the concept of a, of a fiction, fiction Jesus that they are in the process of creating. Okay, Jesus did not intend to establish a new religion. He was Jewish. Nor was Jesus interested in political or social reform in the world. Jesus was, in fact, prophesying the end of the world. Okay? Uh, by the way, there's quite a few statements through here. Here's another one. Uh, to those who really knew Jesus... He was an itinerant preacher, an eschatological prophet, eschatological prophet forecasting the end of historical time. Unlike John the Baptist, whose message was fire and brimstone, Jesus spoke of a God of mercy, a caring father, a new kingdom of love. He was a miracle worker, a holy man, through whom God was said to work in this world. Jesus was a charismatic storyteller. And then he goes on to point out that uh, Jesus believed that the world was going to end and that, that uh, God was going to burst into history and then you would have sort of a millennium set up here. And he never thought in terms of the world going any further than it did at that particular time. Uh, well, I won't read any more on it. it only it, It's the same thing to... The, to give you an idea of some prominent humanist, everybody's familiar with Ted Turner. Uh, last year, Ted Turner was humanist of the year. Okay. Uh, in a speech before the American Humanist Society, uh, Turner criticized fundamentalist Christianity. By the way, fundamentalists are those that believe in the inspiration of the Bible. For emphasizing that man was born into sin, and he said Jesus would probably be sick in his stomach over the way his ideas have been twisted. Uh, Turner said while he was growing up, religion was pounded into us so much that I was saved seven or eight times. You can see his, his Baptist background. 
Turner said he pondered a career as a missionary. Correct, he did. Then his sister died after a lengthy illness, despite his prayers. If God is love and all-powerful, why does he allow these things to happen? Turner asked. The more he, more he strayed from his Christian upbringing, Turner said, the better I felt. He's now a complete uh, humanist. Uh, now, before I say any more, let me, I'm going to throw the floor open where you make any observations. I just want you to make any observations that you want to. What do you do if you're uh, in a class and this has been taught, okay? And by the way, you're, the, as your young people go through college, depending on the courses they take, they will take that information. There, there's absolutely nothing that he mentioned there uh, that I haven't read. In, the, in fact, my reading of it went back into the, the early 60s and in courses that I took and other materials that I, that I read. Uh, Thomas Dewey, the, a big name in education, is an atheist uh, influenced by this kind of material. Uh, Horace Mann, another big name in education, also an atheist. Uh, the number one influence in uh, psychiatry, Sigmund Freud, uh, also an atheist. Uh, Karl Marx, uh, big, very big influence that's down through for a number of years now, also an atheist. Uh, so we're talking about uh, a, a line of thought that has influenced people, that has spread out into the millions and millions, and definitely is affecting uh, the world today, and it's affecting the church. Uh, maybe a lot of your lukewarmness, your indifference within the church, uh, goes back to uh, the very high element of doubt uh, that is in the minds of those who profess to believe. Okay, who wants to take first shot? One of their arguments that you mentioned about this Persian deity was founded on the presupposition that the Gospels were dated later than 150 AD. So. Okay, did you note that the, the, they pointed out that this, that obviously you've got too much similarity with the things about Jesus to be coincidence, right? One has borrowed from the other. You just, there's too many, uh, I mean, uh, too many uh, agreements. So then the question becomes... You're saying if it's not true, then there's too much similarity. Right. I'm saying that one has obviously borrowed from the other. Right. One concept is borrowed from the other. Okay, so here you are in a class, and the person who's putting this information is, now, you make a good observation, Mark. There is no question that either Christianity borrowed from that myth, or that myth borrowed from Christianity. One or the other. Uh, there, there's, uh, and both of it might be false, but one definitely borrowed from the other. There's no question. It's like uh, as a teacher, you're grading a paper, and here are some people that on discussion questions, their answers are just too much the same. One has borrowed from the other. You, uh, any teacher can identify with that real quick. Okay, uh, what your observation was, they make an assumption that the gospel was written at a certain time. All right, now let's take it a step further. Let's allow them that assumption uh, for right now. Let's say the Gospels were written after that. But were the Gospels writing about something that happened at the time they were written, if they were writing? Okay, in other words, the Gospels, let's give them the argument, say it was written after that. They're obviously talking about material that goes back here before that, and they're placing it before. So then what we really have then 
is uh, if they're right, we've got dishonesty. We've got Christians that have borrowed this and then have put it back in advance uh, of that particular time. All right, now, here's an interesting thing. We, I, me I mentioned that all this material comes from liberal scholars, okay? Uh, William Albright, who is dead now, referred to as the, uh, the top biblical historian for a number of years, uh, starting out as a liberal, winding up a conservative as a result of starting, studying archaeology, makes the observation that many of the theories about a, a so-called historical Jesus and the humanist theories all had their origin in a line of thinking uh, in the age of rationalization before the archaeological discoveries. And they probably would have never even been proposed uh, had they come afterwards. Uh, okay, now, to show you how strong, when we talk about the documents of the New Testament being written at an early time, this article here is by a Jew. Not a Christian, but a Jew. And so, this is Dr. Michael Cook, instructor of Bible inter Intertestamental Studies at Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. Okay? Uh, he's speaking here on Jesus, uh, talking about his study. Uh, he said the result of his study was that uh, uh, there was a gradual change of the Jewish view of Jesus. Previously, this view had been as a uh, depicted Jesus as a Jew who had broken with the law, proclaimed himself the Messiah, and used sorcery to do miracles. All right, so this guy is saying that up until recently, this was the Jewish view of Jesus. But think about that. Uh, broke the law, practiced sorcery, claimed to be the Messiah. Isn't this exactly what the Jews of the New Testament that rejected Jesus claimed? And that's the way the New Testament records them. And he says up to recently, obviously it acknowledges the existence of Jesus. It acknowledges that he at least did something that people thought were miracles and that he claimed to be the Messiah. So, when you, here is a guy researching from a liberal Catholic standpoint. If there was anybody directly involved, it was the Jews. And so here is a Jewish scholar, not a Christian, who says, yes, Jesus did exist. He was a worker of sorcery. Uh, he claimed to be the Messiah, and he broke the law. And that's exactly what the New Testament is. Obviously, he has no problem with his existence or the fact that people believe that he claimed to do miracles and things like that. All right, now he goes further. He says, uh, the Christian concept of Christ as a personal Savior is totally different from the concept of the Jewish Messiah, explaining that charges for which Jesus was put to death were political, and his death was not at the hands of the Jewish Sanhedrin, but the hands of the Romans, who thought he was trying to overthrow their political establishment. Uh, Dr. Cook said that Jesus did not bring about freedom from Rome, which is what Jews thought the Messiah would do. Okay, we've always, that he's right. The Jews that you read about in the New Testament were looking for a Messiah that was going to deliver them from Rome, and Jesus was kept telling them the problem wasn't Rome, the problem was their sin. So he's, he's exactly correct on that. All right, now notice his dating. The Gospels were written between 40 and 70 A.D., here is a Jewish scholar, not a Christian, who has no problem whatsoever with the historicity of the New Testament, only with its interpretation, but no problem with the historicity. And he puts the Gospels between 40 and 70 A.D. The latest conservative Christian scholarship 
would put all writings in the New Testament before 70 AD. There's none of the conservative scholars that I know of that would not put all of the Gospels before, before 70 AD. There are over 1,500 uh, materials coming out of the first century that so totally quote the New Testament that you can reconstruct the New Testament from those materials. You can dogmatically, no if, and, or but, put the material written about Jesus before 70 A.D. Uh, the guy is doing his research from liberal Catholic scholars who in turn are reading and studying from materials that go back before all the discoveries of archaeology. And, and yet that material, it's sort of like some of the, some of the information maybe in, in the field of health or other areas that's already been discredited out there, but yet we still may have it in a textbook at school and people are still studying it. Uh, by the way, a lot of the uh, mechanics of organic evolution that are in some of the textbooks that we have at school is material that the evolutionists themselves have already rejected. They've already moved on, but it's still there in the textbook. The textbooks are always operating five or ten years behind where the scholarship is. Okay, now, so what we have is, when we, when we look at it, is that, what is that evidence of then? If in A.D. 50, you have the Romans coming up with a character that is a son of God, performs miracles, uh, has all this sophisticated teaching, uh, uh, talks about mercy and things like that, Obviously, that's pretty strong evidence that the Christians were being so influential and winning so many converts to Christianity that what is wrong echoes in them. Some of the Roman philosophers, they're going to bottom the action and until after the success of Christianity. And they went back and put some miracles in the Vedas also. Okay, now, anybody want to make another observation on the material? I thought... Um I think it's very important uh, dating as far as Christians applying. Um, I noticed that he really stressed um, that Christians are looking for the end of the world or, and that that's a falsehood and that Jesus was looking for the end of the world and the apostles were looking for the end of the world and obviously it didn't come and it's not come now and, and so he makes a big play on that. So to me that becomes very important that we put it right where that historian just put it as being completed before 70 AD because if it applies to the destruction of Jerusalem then that takes care of that. Okay, what she pointed out is one of the top evidences used by the humanist and by atheist against the inspiration of the New Testament is the fact that Jesus prophesied the end of the world during the lifetime uh, I mean, see, nobody's denying the world's going to end. A science, scientist will tell you pretty quick, you know, the world's going to end. The sun's in the process of burning itself out. The first and saw, second law of thermodynamics teach that everything is proceeding from order to disorder. Uh, we, we're going to end. So nobody denies that. But they point out that Jesus said the world was going to end during the lifetime of most of the people that were alive in that day and that he promised to come back and end it. And that Paul picked up on that, and Paul believed it until his dying day, that the world was going to end. Well, they said that by the uh, Christian's own definition of a prophet, Jesus was proved to be a false prophet. He didn't come back. The world didn't end. And just like 
two miles down the street, we've got a church with a sign up there that says Jesus is coming soon. Well, almost 2,000 years have passed, and, and, people, and, 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 and he still hasn't got here. So then the question becomes, if you're in the world and you're reading this material, what do you think when you, when you walk down, you see a sign, Jesus is coming soon, and it's been pointing out to you that Christians were saying that in the first century, and that for 2,000 years, people have been telling, Christians have been telling the world that Jesus is coming soon, and you've already had somebody pointed out to you that Jesus told them he was coming back while they were still alive, and, and it didn't happen, and that it should have fell on its face, and yet Christians continue to do that. Uh, I was taking a course in uh, philosophy of religion, when I was in the Marine Corps stationed in Okinawa. And it was an extension course at the University of Maryland being taught by an Oriental professor. He was a Chinese that taught the course. And he made a big point on this as we looked at religions. Uh, the fact that, uh, that all the early Christians believed that the, the world was going to end, that Jesus taught it, it didn't happen. That was one of the evidences. And the people in the class thought that was a... And see, I was a very young person at the time. I was 19 when I went into Marine Corps. I don't know how to deal with it. You see, I believed uh, all that, and, and it caused me to, oh, well, well, they're right. You know, it does, and, and it's interesting. They know those passages, and, the, and, and this professor could go right to the New Testament and show you every one of those passages where Jesus said that he was going to come back in their lifetime while they were still alive, and if Paul said it, and all the writers said it would be soon and imminent, and he had all those passages, and then he pointed out how Christians had misused that particular thing. So that's, that's right. It's uh, uh, the one thing that will come out in the whole article is sometimes what Christians have taught in any number of areas have a whole lot to do with what people think about the Bible. All right, did you catch the Turner by, the, by Ted Turner? Uh, here, here's a man that has mocked the Ten Commandments, uh, uh, humanist of the year, uh, trying to put down Christianity. But what about his youth? Very religious. Saved seven or eight times. Prayed to God. God didn't answer his prayer. Uh, eventually uh, left it completely. Uh, I get, by the way, I've read some more things on Ted. The more I read about Ted Turner, the more convinced I am that some of the falsehoods that he was taught as a child had a whole lot to his, with his rejecting religion. Uh, some of the falsehoods he was taught in the church, some of his experiences. I mean, how many people like Ted Turner or how many others, like take this guy that's doing the research in Catholicism, have been brought up in a so-called Christian setting where the people were just as worldly, just as immoral, just as ungodly in their lives, uh, really didn't study the Bible all that much, didn't know why they believed what they did, and yet went through these rituals and, and things like that. Uh, I can see how that atmosphere, if, you, if, you, if along the way you might just take it because everybody else seems to, but then if you get in an intellectual setting where some professors begin to challenge that, how you then might take your mind and work back through the years and, you, and say, well, hey, we have been living in some kind of a, we, may, we need to be honest. With it, so we've been living in some kind of a dream world that really uh, is not so. Um, if you'll read about some people like Karl Marx, Joseph Stalin. Joseph Stalin, by the way, went to a seminary in the Russian Orthodox Church to be a Russian Orthodox priest. 
in that seminary, Joseph Stalin became an atheist, studying from their literature. Here's a young guy. What about the guy that writes this article that we just read? Not a humanist, is he? He was a devout Catholic, brought up believing in Jesus, believing in God, believing in miracles, believing in the virgin birth, uh, worshiping God. What sends him into his unbelief and he's coming up with this article? Who's he reading from? Roman Catholic scholars. Uh, they got, what if in doing that research he had ran into some good books on Christian evidences by some Roman Catholic scholars? Uh, by the way, do you know why that Rome started out initially to pick at the New Testament in the way they did? Uh, the difference between the Catholic Church and the Protestant is our attitude towards authority. Uh, the Catholic Church states that authority is in this succession of, of apostles that we trace all the way back down to the Pope. And you have a living church. Protestants teach that the authority is in the Bible. So, you've always had, ever since Martin Luther, you've had this tremendous friction between Catholics and Protestants over the Bible. And, and they look, the Catholic Church looks on us as renegades and rebels because we have left the true apostle of God on this earth. Well, then what better way to get us to see our error than to be constantly going back and pointing out flaws in the, in the New Testament and trying to show you that it's just a work of human beings, uh, that a lot of it is fictional, that some of it is false, and that in reality, you've got to have your trust in the inspired person, that you can't trust this document it's been tampered with. You're going to have to trust this person who's inspired of God. So in an effort to fight the very theology of the Protestants came the impetus for examining and, and studying the Bible in that way. And that's where their scholarship wound up. And, and by the time they're through, how many of them within that faith even have a strong faith at all or any real belief in the Bible? I don't know. I know I've met very few in fact, I personally have never met a Catholic, and, I, and this is after th three years in New Jersey where most of our contacts with was Roman Catholics. I personally have never met a Roman Catholic uh, who was a good student of the Bible. I have simply never, never met one. But on the other hand, most of the professing Christians I've met in the Protestant world are also not good students of the Bible. Okay, anybody with another observation? It seems to lump all of the Christian thought together. allow for the possibility that uh, the Catholics have, have it wrong, but maybe somebody else has it right. Um, just because he, he thinks the Catholic interpretation is wrong, he seems to throw all the rest of them in. Okay, that's good observation, Mark, that he, he obviously is very selective on who he uses. And uh, he uh, uses their material and the assumption is that the best of Christian scholarship ought to be found in Catholic scholarship. And if they don't have it, you couldn't expect it. He's obviously not even interested in anybody else. So we see, uh, really, even though he winds up a humanist, we actually see his Catholic bias affecting his research. Okay, but then again, let's go back and, and if one of, uh, uh, from our background was doing the research, how many Catholic scholars do you think that we would consult? How many of us, have, uh, how many in the church know about uh, one of the great Catholic thinkers of all time, like Thomas Aquinas or Augustine, and, and some, right, and some of those people? 
Uh, and by the way, they had some very top-notch thinkers who did put out materials, and Aquinas actually fought and wrote to defend the inspiration of the Bible, and, and yet totally unknown among many, many Protestants. I think some of these people could be reasoned with if, if it was shown to them that that sure there are Christians that you know teach wrong things but to get them to go back to the Bible again and and point out that Jesus said this would happen within your generation and that and then to go into the figurative language and the fact that we do believe that he he came back in his generation and that all of this was figurative language right. of the all right, who is a humanist if a person is teaching that in class, and like you're talking about, what would be the odds of there being a Christian in class that did not believe 100% that that was referring to the Christ coming back and the world going to end? Yeah, I, I mean, I I'm saying what would be the odds of even yeah. meeting anybody or reading anything that would well, say that? And, of course, of course, I think in fairness to Christians, I think the the mistranslation in the King James yeah. Version. Um, yeah. No, I'm not talking about that, though. For, for our study, I'm just talking about put yourself in the place of that person who has made that observation as an evidence against the inspiration. What would be his mathematical chances any time he confronted a Christian of finding one that would even take issue with that point? Yeah, no, I'm not very good, but I'm saying that. Yeah. No, I know, but I'm just saying it from his standpoint that he's not going to meet him. And, what, and, if he, and if he picks up uh, biblical literature, what would be his mathematical chances of even finding writings that, that would even say, in other words, everything he would read just about would reinforce the very thing they're saying? Well, he's going to use the majority of what the Christians believe anyway. Right. Sure. He's going to... There, there is, even with our democratic ideas as a society... There is a tendency to think majority rules, majority is right. And uh, if you're involved in anything small, uh, in fact, that was Christianity's initial problem. It was very insignificant. If you're involved in anything that's small, uh, people find it hard to credit. The bigger it gets, the more credit. I mean, if you're really not in, if you're going out to buy a car, and you just happen to be a type person, maybe uh, that reads magazines and, and articles and consumers reports and all like that. But if you don't read that kind of stuff, what kind of car are you most going to buy? I mean, what are you really, uh, isn't it the ones that you see most people driving? Won't that be the ones that you tend to think are okay? Uh, you, for example, when I got into reading the consumer publications, I was surprised to find out that General Motors, the largest automobile country in the world, has absolutely the worst reliability record over the past uh, 10 to 15 years of any car company in the world. Their cars are, are on the very bottom so far as reliability. Well, they're, they're trying to get out, but I'm saying I was surprised. You know, I just was always, some people like Chevy, some people like Ford, you know, and that's the way I was brought up. And, and, and to realize that, uh, that, uh, that this large company, and, and we have people out there saying, buy American and everything like that, you know, and, and, the Jap and, the, and the Japanese are pictured as a lot of crooks that are coming in here. But then you get into reading from the automobile publications, and you find out it's no accident that the Japanese are walking off of the market. They are producing the most reliable cars. Uh, I mean, so far as the evidence uh, is, is concerned. But I'm saying if you just look at it, you, don't, you, wouldn't, 
you know, you, they, nobody thought that on them until they sold a whole lot, you know, and they, they began. But you, you, we tend to follow whatever a lot think on any subject. All right, any other observation to the article? How, think about it from the standpoint, how would you respond to it? And keep in mind, you, you really, it's hard for most of, a lot of you to put yourself in the position of some that are going to respond to it in various ways, because if you have lived your life and actually put the principles of Christianity to work in your life, and if you have seen others who did it, you already have an evidence going for you that somebody else does not have. Uh, you know, you've, you've got that. Uh, and then if you've already read materials and, or heard sermons on evidences and all, you've got some. But the average person out there, I'm saying, has never heard a sermon on Christian evidences. Uh, he's never heard the Bible approach from the standpoint of proving it. And uh, he just simply comes in contact with these articles. And, and the, pub, the, the publications abound out there uh, dealing with just information that is designed to discredit the Bible in various ways. All right, now look at our society as a whole. Looking at what we're accepting from a moral standpoint in our society, would you say that most of the people in this country believe that the Bible was written by men who were inspired by God? Did they literally believe that? They don't. Uh, Christians walk around with this maybe thinking that uh, most people do. They, they don't. Uh, uh, who gets shocked because people are living together and not married? Who gets shocked after four or five divorces and, uh, and whatnot? Uh, does Johnny Carson's lack of success in marriage or Liz Taylor's lack of success in marriage, does it, does it hinder everybody from adoring them and, and paying good money to go see their movies and whatnot or to listen to them? It, it doesn't. We just accept that is in our, obviously I'm saying there's, there, the, the majority of our population do not. Uh, the very, uh, as James said, in reality, the, your actions say more about what you believe than your mouth does. Uh, he says, you know, that uh, uh, you believe that God is one, the devils believe and tremble. He says, show me your uh, faith without works, and I by my works will show you my faith. Anybody can say they believe in God or they believe in Jesus. I believe the way they live their life will really tell you whether or not they do, uh, from a from a trusting standpoint. I think I think if you, you know, one of the points that you've been bringing out about uh, you know, the, the scholarship that he quotes from, you know, we have we have the Humanist magazine that has that has you know the, the, the belief that this isn't true, and then they pick. They pick a, they pick one scholar out of the vast majority of scholars that'll match what they believe. That's exactly right, and that's okay. a good observation. And then, right. and then you have this one scholar who who picks all liberal scholars to do right. his research based on. That's right. So what uh. you end up with is a totally biased article. Okay, that's good. If you were sitting in a class. That, that, you've got a limited time to respond to what that professor's saying, and you couldn't have said it better there. That number one, there are all kinds of articles and books being written defending the Christian faith. There's just a multitude of works on Christian evidences. You can say that there are lawyers, there are doctors, there's engineers, 
there are people with genius IQs or ex-atheists who believe devoutly in the inspiration of the Bible. There's some reason for that. So the humanist looks and they pick one person who writes something that fits their thinking and it would have never got in their publication unless it fitted their thinking. He in turn has chose to use for his research only people of a, of a similar type thinking. You, you literally, if you were going to a court of law, could not have a more biased approach. So I mean the very least that the person, if you was talking with the, the, a professor who was an unbeliever, the very least you could get him to acknowledge is that how could that article be any more biased than it is? Uh, I mean, I don't know how it could be. The, the other view is not even uh, given credit whatsoever. All right, notice also in the article he mentions about Paul hallucinating. Notice how he really made no attempt to deal with Paul. See, he acknowledges Paul existed. Uh, all historians will acknowledge Paul was a devout Jew trying to stamp out Christianity. Uh, everybody acknowledges the, the very high degree of sophistication in Paul's reasoning. You know, is there any attempt even to deal with Paul? There's, there's not. Uh, on the, and then uh, when it came to the uh, statement by Tacitus, he uses it as uh, something that, uh, of a negative nature, and yet a, a person in the field of evidence would use it positive. He'd say, look, Tacitus acknowledged the existence of Jesus, he acknowledges that he was executed by Pontius Pilate. He, he acknowledges that they buried him. He acknowledges that Christians believe he was raised from the dead. He acknowledges that after that crucifixion, shortly afterwards, that Christianity began to spread again, and they got so big that uh, Rome began to persecute it and to fight it. So everything that Tacitus acknowledges will corroborate with what we actually find in the New Testament document itself. Pardon? When did Tacitus write? Okay, to Tacitus, uh, from about, born I believe about 55, and his writing takes place in the first part of the second century, but he records, the, and, and he records from uh, the, the Acts of Pontius Pilate, and actually quotes uh, at the time he writes, he's writing from the records and all of Pontius Pilate and the, the other governors at, at that time. And he is very familiar with Nero and all of those acts and getting all his information from that standpoint, none of it from a Christian standpoint. He definitely uh, was not a Christian. And, and he could make the observation, like, uh, see, a, a Christian scholar that is a believer would point out that every statement you find in the secular sources, the facts they deal with corroborate with the information you find in the New Testament. In other words, whatever impact is there corroborates with what you would expect based on this statement uh, in, in the New Testament. All right, another person he didn't mention, he mentioned in there, I don't remember if you caught this when I read about, about the Tubigen School. The Tubigen School was started in Germany and they postulated the theory of the evolution of religion. And so you have the evolution, of the, but it wasn't just the Gospels. They have the evolution of all religion. The Tibetan school was influenced by the theory of organic evolution. And so if man evolved physically, he also evolved intellectually and religiously. And so it's based on a theory that everything that man believes has evolved. And so therefore the Gospels evolve and they go back and they get a core. And then they evolve the rest of it. But it's all the evolution is based on their theory. 
Okay, then the liberal theologians took over from those theories. But the theory is based on the evolution of religion. In, the, in other words, we evolved from polytheism to monotheism. Okay, now what William Ramsey meant, or I should, before that, uh, William Albright and other archaeologists, is that the archaeologists will tell you now that you don't have evolution from, mono, from polytheism to monotheism. What you really have is, is evolution from monotheism, which was first, to polytheism, and then the Jews come along and, and get the matter straight again. But you have polytheism, monotheism, and then strong polytheism uh, within the Jews, and that would be the archaeological statement. All right, it's mono, poly, and then mono. All right, another thing he doesn't point out when he goes back and looks at history that the Old Testament is full of material that liberal scholars once put in the myth category that has been totally verified. So it's about the Hittites, the Jebusites, and other peoples that they challenge their existence. And now we can go back and as a result of the archaeological discoveries, read all about these people, people and read about them in exactly the same way that you have them in the Bible. Well, there's no mention of that. All right, another person he doesn't mention is William Ramsdy. Ramsdy was a gr graduate of the Tubigian School. And as an archaeologist, he set out studying, believing that the New Testament had evolved, and actually out to prove through his archaeological discoveries that the New Testament had evolved, and that there was a lot of myth and everything in it. The end result is that Ramsey became a strong believer and wound up writing books on Paul's travels and referred to Luke as the most accurate historian that he had ever worked after as an archaeologist. And he doesn't mention that there have been any number of archaeologists and historians through the years that were brought up in that liberal thinking, but then upon going back and examining the facts, actually became devout believers. He doesn't mention the atheists through the years that upon studying the evidences actually became believers as a result of it. Uh, let me see. Uh, any... Oh. In his article, he points out that Paul writes very little about the life of Jesus, and so were the other New Testament writers, uh, that they deal entirely with the deity of Jesus and his resurrection. All right? They use that as evidence to show this evolution of the New Testament, that you have this historical Jewish Jesus, and then the evolution, uh, starting with Paul, of his becoming God. But what you really have when you look at the letters, like a, a, Christian, a conservative Christian scholar would point out that the reason you have Paul writing in the way that he does is that Paul and all the writers in the New Testament are really responding to whatever was the problem. And the existence of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, none of that was even a debatable issue in the days of the, of, of the apostles and all. Uh, even among the Jews it was not debatable. Where the debate was, was on the resurrection and the deity of Christ. And so therefore, they centered all their attention where the debate was, and, that was, and they didn't even get into the area. The, the other area wasn't, wasn't even challenged. Well, one of the things, to take it a little bit further, why do you think it is that Paul never quoted anything out of the gospel? I mean, he never quotes any of the sayings of Jesus or anything. Why did he not do it? All right, number one... That stuff was written before a lot of the Gospels was. I know, but that material that the Gospel came out of was, was around. But what was the, the need for? In other words, this material is there, and it's in their minds. 
So when Paul is dealing with the misuse of the Lord's Supper, he goes back and quotes what Jesus said. But the only reason he does it is not to teach them anything about the Lord's Supper. They already have that material. But he only goes back to correct them on the way they're keeping the Lord's Supper. All right, when uh, Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles, Jesus went entirely to the Jews. And so even when Paul deals with marriage, he has to take it a step further. Jesus had never dealt with the situation of an unbeliever being married to a believer because that was no problem with the Jews. When Paul deals with marriage, he's almost entirely concerned about the situation with believers married to unbelievers, and so he deals with it from that standpoint. All right? The, Paul begins his concern with Jesus with the resurrection, and his arguments revolve around the resurrection, and he quotes the appearance to Peter, to James, uh, to the above 500, and some of the things that you read back in the Gospels itself, he quotes, and he's concerned with that. All right? The information, pardon me, concerning the deity of Jesus really was not understood until after the revelation, and the Holy Spirit was to guide them into all truth, and that is where they did go ahead. And in other words, even when they remember the transfiguration that's recorded in the Gospels, Jesus told Peter and James and John, he says, don't even tell others about this now. Wait until after my resurrection. Well, what they killed him for was his claim to be God. They, they were very gradually being brought to that understanding. At any time along the way, they wouldn't want him to kill him based on his claim to be, to be God. All right, but then when you look at what Paul said about morality, it's perfectly, in, in other words, it's the same morality as, as taught by Christ. And then Paul is always going back and looking at the person of Jesus as the perfect example and have this attitude in you that Christ Jesus had, that although he existed, etc., you know, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Or right, How did Paul imitate Christ except he was 100% familiar with all that life? And he assumed they were 100% familiar right. with it also. But his, his, his constant appeal was, you imitate me as I imitate Christ. And there was the assumption that everybody is familiar with every bit of that material and that he is familiar and he knows that about the attitude of Jesus uh, when, he, when he touches on marriage, he says, the Lord has said, but I say unto you. In other words, and then whenever he gives his judgment, he, he mentions that particular point. But most of Paul's letters are written in response to uh, the problems, like at Corinth or wherever. Don't you think you could develop, uh, I mean, we could develop the argument a whole lot further about the, the dating of, of the Gospels because... If, if you can prove, of course, I know you can do this in a quick sense, but if you can prove that, that they're dated uh, between 40 and 70, for instance, and that means that, that, that they were around when the people of that generation mm -hmm. were still there who would have had a chance to refute right. the legitimacy of, of that contained within. Right. And you can. In other words, you right now... I, to my mind, and I approach it from the standpoint of uh, skepticism in, in, many, in many ways. I mean, from my background and all, uh, in my mind, the evidence is absolutely conclusive on all four Gospels, not just the three, but all four being written before 70 A.D. Uh, really, personally, I'm not, uh, I don't believe that Paul wrote the first. I believe that Mark's Gospel was circulated before Paul's writings. Uh, the uh, and the gospel was, was known material 
that was being circulated before the actual writing. I mean, when they say that Paul's letter was first, they mean from the standpoint of the empirical evidence that they have, you know, that they, they were able to nail his letters down first, you know, to those particular churches. But uh, I don't, uh, the information now and that uh, is such that I don't, uh, I, I don't know that anything could happen that would convince me any stronger concerning all four Gospels having written, been written well in advance of 70 A.D. Uh, and see, Luke concludes Acts in 60 A.D. All scholars acknowledge that. Well, obviously, Luke had to be written before that. And, and Acts itself is written when uh, he leaves Paul in jail at 60 A.D. when he concludes it. All right, another evidence on all the New Testament writers, an internal evidence being written before 70 A.D., can you imagine the event of 70 A.D. and the destruction of the temple and the city and the end of Jewish persecution? And no writer even mentions that. Here's John, and nobody even alludes to it. You've got John supposedly talking about the end of the world in Revelation, and he doesn't even allude to the destruction of Jerusalem and perfect fulfillment of what Jesus said. He doesn't even allude to that. I mean, obviously, that the big event hadn't happened yet when... Uh, uh, whenever the, you know, the material was completed. Uh, all of the writers of the Bible, when they spoke of a, a promised judgment, would always refer back to past, like they'd refer back to Sodom, they'd refer back to uh, Egypt, they'd refer back to Babylon. It was their practice to always refer back the same God that fulfilled his promise here is going to do this. There's never a time when they refer back to Jerusalem. It was always an event that had not happened, but yet they were looking forward to it. Um, one of the things I think the, that uh, he mentioned about the humanists, the, uh, you know, as far as their study and everything like that, we need more Christians that are willing to take the time to seriously and see what the problem is, is the majority of people, take, I'll use Churches of Christ as a, uh, because of the background of, of most here. The majority of the people were brought up in an environment where they actually believe the Bible. And, and they just simply haven't thought of it in too much about the way. And, and most of the preachers within the Church of Christ come from environments where they actually believed. In fact, many of the preachers were raised by preachers. Their daddy, you know, was a preacher or somebody else in the family. <clears throat> Consequently, very little of the preaching has been in that realm or thing. I'm saying that there is a tremendous need for people to study the material and the evidences and that when we send our young people to, to college, they need to know why they believe the Bible's inspired of God. They need to know something about the historicity of the Old and New Testament. Uh, they need to know something about the manuscripts. For example, another thing he didn't mention in that article is that uh, the manuscript evidence for the New Testament is superior to anything in ancient history. If, you, if you're going to discard it in any way, you may as well throw everything else away because there's, there's nothing there. Notice he would quote Tacitus without batting an eye. The manuscripts we have of Tacitus don't even compare with what we have in the New Testament so far as the actual manuscripts. I mean, it's the actual Tacitus manuscripts are several centuries uh, beyond Tacitus, and yet he quotes him without batting an eye, and yet would be little a source that is so much more credible from a historical standpoint. Yeah, there's so much reluctance to, to even uh, accept the writings of believers as, as evidence 
Okay, that's even even to allow them to even discuss them. You know, if, if they were written by people that believe this stuff, then they're obviously biased. All right, and on that very point, Mark, that's a good observation. There, we we let them slide by with that, and we sit back and say, "Yeah, that's right. New Testament was written by believers." But the whole point is, every last one of those believers were at first unbelievers. Paul writes 13 letters. Here is a devout unbeliever who's trying to stamp out Christianity. This is not some guy wanting, to, wanting Jesus. He is the most reluctant convert than anybody. He had to have it forced on him just about, you know. Well, what about Peter? Uh, even uh, here's his, his own denials there of Christ. Uh, a crucified Messiah was no Messiah. This Jewish article is exactly correct. The Jews were looking for the overthrow of Rome. There wasn't anybody there that was a believer in Jesus until after this reported resurrection. Everybody is an admitted unbeliever. And so, sure, yes, the New Testament's written by believers. It's written by believers in the same sense that John Clayton is a believer today. John Clayton is a former atheist who became a believer because of evidence. He now is writing material telling you this is what caused me to become a believer. The same as C.S. Lewis. Uh, a former atheist who says, this is what caused me to change my thinking. Or Hugh Ross, former atheist, who says, this is what happened. Well, this is Paul and the writers of the Bible. They are former unbelievers that are saying, as a result of this information, I have changed my thinking, and I've been wrong. And every one of them are having to acknowledge that they were actually wrong in their prior, th prior thinking. So it's, it's not like a group of people that have been brought up something from childhood and then are out to prove it. You've got grown men who were taught something the exact opposite, who then were forced to give it up because of this information, and then they are relating to you that information that forced them to give it up. It's also being written by people that are being persecuted and thrown in jail and going to their death, and all they have to do to live a normal life is to reject Christianity. Well, see, that's not mentioned, that's not mentioned either. The report couldn't be any more biased, but in fairness to the guy that wrote it, I think he's honest. I think he did the best he could with the material that he dealt with and concerning his back. I think what he needs and Ted Turner needs and the others, they need contact with Christians who just simply know more of the other side. And, and we need, in our congregations and all, we need to get more study time put on this information. Uh, how many Bible classes study the manuscripts? I mean, can you go, you can go, you can be a teenager, uh, go through high school and college in the, in the typical church and not know anything about the manuscripts that your faith rests on. Barbara and I, I'll shut up in just a minute. Barbara and I sat in a class right over at College Side, the church that owes its existence because of Tennessee Tech. That was its number one reason for being established there, to serve the students at Tennessee Tech. We sat in a class and in studying uh, the area I brought up the thing of evidences, we was talking about evangelism. And uh, it was a consensus of the class. In fact, one of the prominent members there brought out, he says, you do not need evidences to prove the Bible. I don't know his exact words, but that's nonsense. He says, you just have to believe it. He said, I can prove the resurrection of Jesus with my life. All you have to do is says, my life is proof that Christianity is true. That was his state. Okay. Everybody in there agreed with him. A couple of other fellows, also with college degrees, this guy has a college degree, they said that, Paul says, you cannot prove it. You just have to accept it on faith. When you go back to studying that, you just simply get confused. One scholar believes this, one scholar believes that. 
You just simply have to make the decision to accept it on faith or to reject it. That was the consensus of the entire class. Uh, there is nothing presented.